I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. This Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air nationally across the United States and internationally in West Africa, in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, our main event conversation, World Water Day, H2O, or rather H2O, hell no, Flint water crisis, undrinkable, environmental, and racial. Hot topic one, the V word, vote from the prisons to the polls. Time served, vote denied, why? Hot topic two, Black Lives Matter Chicago protest movement ousts prosecutor. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Imani Azuri and Glenda Carr. Imani Azuri is a vocalist, composer, and cultural worker. She was a 2015 Park Avenue Armory artist in residence. She will make her Lincoln Center American Songbook debut March 31st, celebrating black American women musicians like Odetta, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Vera Hall, Bessie Smith, Mahalia Jackson, and more. Glinda Carr is a political strategist, advocate, and co-founder of Higher Heights, a national organization working to elect more black women to political office. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hi. Hi, Esther. Let's start with our main event. World Water Day is March 22nd. The theme this year, water and jobs. The day focuses attention on the importance of fresh water and advocates for the sustainable management of freshwater resources. I'm sitting in Accra, Ghana, where the Volta region in the north faces its own freshwater issues. In India, reports of dried up rivers jeopardize Indian citizens' health. World Water Day focuses on so-called developing countries, their freshwater challenges and the waterborne diseases that result from a lack of access to fresh water and specifically the use of polluted water. In the U.S., the world's superpower, supposedly, Flint, Michigan, has faced its own water crisis. This one was man-made. H2O. Or rather, H2O hell no. Since April 2014, residents of Flint have been drinking and bathing in water that contains enough lead to meet the Environmental Protection Agency's definition of toxic waste. Basically, men, women, grandmothers, children have been drinking poison. Here's a timeline from NBC News of exactly what happened. In April 2014, Flint switched from Detroit's water supply to save money. Immediately, there were complaints about its taste and smell. In February 2015, the first test showed elevated lead levels. Officials insisted the water was safe. But that June, an EPA official wrote a report warning that the lack of any treatment for lead is of serious concern. Officials discussed those concerns but took no action, while children and others continued drinking the water. In September 2015, independent researchers discovered alarming levels of lead in children's blood. Six days later, the governor publicly acknowledged the problem. 
It wasn't until this month, nearly two years later, that the governor declared a state of emergency and asked for federal help. Flint got federal help. President Obama declared a federal emergency. That means the state can get up to $5 million in aid. But the government stopped short of declaring it a federal disaster, which would mean more money. President Obama nominated Dr. Nicole Lurie to lead the federal response in Flint and met with the mayors of Michigan. Michigan Governor Rick Snyder resisted continued calls for his resignation. He did admit the lead-contaminated water was a disaster, a man-made one. And during his State of the State address, he pledged to fix it. But he continued to argue he simply did not know about the lead. Here he is talking to Fox News. Flint's poor. It's majority black. They feel like you've abandoned them. Is this your Katrina? Well, if you look at it, this is a disaster. I mean, this is something that I had people that worked for me, to be blunt, that let all of us down. But I'm responsible, so I'm not trying to get out of that. You have to be responsible for these things. I'm taking responsibility, but I want to fix the problem. Lead aside, yeah. how could you have not known that water was toxic for a year and a half? It was orange. It had fecal chlorine in there that could poison people. GM wouldn't put its machinery in it. Your spokesman was married to the spokesman of the DEQ. You didn't get a whisper, and if you didn't, what does that say about you? Yeah, again, there were concerns with the water, and I appreciate that. There was color issues, other issues. There were a couple boil advisories, and none of that was good. But those were being addressed in really their own issue in some fashion. The topic of lead didn't come up. There was a congressional hearing into the Flint water crisis. Environmental Protection Agency officers and Governor Rick Snyder faced challenge after challenge about their actions, or rather inaction, the timeline of what happened and the absolute leadership failure. Here's Democratic Representative Elijah Cummings who opened the hearing, telling the governor that Flint, Michigan's children will have to live with his inaction, his leadership failure. It starts with Governor Snyder explaining he will have to live with what has happened. I'm going to have to live with this my entire life. Governor, you know what? You know, I've heard you say that, but I've got to tell you, their children have got to live with it, the damage that has been done for the rest of their lives. And it is painfully painful to think that a child can be damaged until the day they die and that their destiny has been cut off and messed up. So, yeah, you have to live with it, but they, many of these children will never be what God intended them to be when they were born. In the run-up to the Michigan primary, Flint's water crisis became a presidential political issue, with both Democratic contenders Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton weighing in. Flint residents, organizers, activists, and organizations are angry. They say action has been too slow, that their children and families are suffering, that their health and future is at stake. They took to the streets to raise their voices in protest at what they described as politicians playing politics with Flint residents' lives. Here's Kendall Fells, the national organizing director of the Fight for $15 movement, a reference to raising the minimum wage. About 40% of the residents here in Flint are in poverty. You have poor black workers who are now suffering from a man-made crisis with lead in their water. There are babies that are sick that will have to deal with illnesses for the rest of their life. Grandmothers, you have people that are in hospitals for multiple months and some people are losing their lives while politicians are sitting back playing politics. They say this is environmental racism. 
Flint is 57% African-American and poor, and they say it simply would not have happened in a place like the affluent white Michigan suburbs like Bloomfield Hills. Here's Pastor Daniel Moore Sr. of Flint's Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. If this problem had happened in Bloomfield Hills and Birmingham and some of the wealthier areas, it would have already been taken care of. We're two years into this, going on three years, with no real solid plan in sight. So yes, you can call that environmental uh, racism. What if this happened in Beverly Hills? In an article in The Root, the writer argues Flint's water crisis fits into a historical narrative and legacy of environmental racism in the U.S. Polluters have been given free reign to prey on communities of color, partly because of weak, ineffective environmental regulations. In the end, when it comes to this man-made water crisis, who really pays? Who ultimately profits? Let's talk water, man-made crises, environmental racism on this World Water Day, H2, oh, hell no. Imani Zuri, let me start with you. Water is, is something that we, seems like you can almost take it for granted, a lot of us. Um, and at least in America, you know, you turn on your faucet and the water is there. And you just expect it to be all right. You know, you expect it to be all right because everyone has access to it. But then when you think about um, these different um, segregated or isolated communities of color, you know, from, you know, poor uh, African-American communities, I'm sure Native American communities, Latino communi communities, on and on and on, um, and these blighted communities, um, you can probably trace a long history of these types of uh, endangerment with what we might consider like a basic right to have clean water. Um, I'm also thinking a lot about not only is the water under attack, but our food is under attack. You know, GMO is regulated. Apparently they've even allowed a genetically modified salmon to be put into the market. And, you know, I personally will have more choices as an artist, as a bohemian, as an activist, to think about, let me, you know, make a different choice about the type of fish I, I might buy. So I wouldn't buy the GMO fish, but some people don't have the time to, to or, you know, or the, or the resources to even know as much about what may be happening with the government or with the ways in which the government doesn't take care of its people, even to the point of there's certain bottled water um, that I've been avoiding that, they, that they'll even serve you on planes um, that has all these you know, synthetic materials in it. And most people, when they drink it, probably don't even realize that they're not drinking just water. So um, it's just making me think of the long history of, from what I know about all the different experiments that have happened on people of color, um, you know, the Tuskegee experiment, the, the smallpox, like it's on and on and on. We can just name all of these type of travesties that have just shown over again that it, certain people are just considered uh, disposable and not valuable. And then another thing that I've also thought about is how companies are considered human. You know, companies have the rights of people, from what I understand. And companies, their needs, historically, are more important than the needs of, of everyday people. And so, um, yeah, this, this Flint water crisis, is, it's, it's, it's surreal, it's unreal, it's almost like Octavia Butler book when you start hearing about everything that's going on. And it's, it's just distressing. Um, that this has been going on so long, but it reminds me of what happened in Katrina, the way the government has not responded. And Katrina happened, how long did it take for the government to come and try to be supportive and help people? It took a long time. And even now, the repercussions are still seen. 
so I guess the final thing I'll say, it'll be interesting to see what other parts of the country, of our country, this supposedly great land, <laughs> what other parts are people being, um, you know, poisoned by our, by the very place that we're supposed to be here for us and protecting us. Glenda Kerr? I wake up every morning um, thinking that I have been recently cast as a member um, of the Madman um, show, that we're actually living in this 1950s, 1960s um, parallel communities where we're still fighting for equal, you know, rights. So the ability to ensure that, you know, we 50 years of progress on some of the economic um, uh, justice work that we've done to, from eliminating lead from, you know, our paint uh, and our um, water system to the fact that we are fighting for our voting rights, the fact that we are fighting um, um, for our equal pay, that, you know, we are in a daily, daily uh, parallel community to a madman episode. That being said, you know, Flint provides a very clear um, example of what politics um, the politics of public policy, the notion that all things are politics. And although, you know, we are seeking for a government that is looking to create good public policy, that it's tied to politics and using Flint as an example that, you know, the politics of economic racism. But this is, to me, an organizing moment. Although Flint is an, a blatant example of a government looking at a community that they believe is disenfranchised um, and is able to uh, determine public policy based on what's the cheapest route, not the safest route for um, the residents of, of a state or a city. In the moment where people felt that they didn't have a voice, the way this became a national conversation or a national debate is because mothers and community members continue to put pressure on the city and the state, um, particularly the state, because in this instance, the governor took over control of several cities in Michigan, that they pushed the envelope um, and catapulted to a national conversation where, in fact, the conversation um, in the presidential debate has shifted to a conversation about Flint and, and, and the environment. Um, so in a state where people go, why should I care? Why should I vote? We need to double down in this election cycle to ensure our issues are, are being heard. And for, I think, African-Americans in particular, we need to um, move beyond a silo approach of our issues. Um, you know, we are very clearly in some very strong um, issue-based fights right now around voting rights, um, around the organizing, around um, police brutality, organizing around um, issues about lifting our communities out of poverty, ensuring that we have um, you know, access to affordable health care and jobs with a living wage with benefits, um, that this, again, is an organizing moment where we need, need to connect, connect the issues to politics and to policy um, and create an a, a overall discussion around uh, an, an African-American agenda that includes, um, you know, the economic stability of our communities, but developing public policies and the politics that we need to push those policies to ensure that we have a healthy, safe, and educated community. And within that, um, you have your subsets of environmental justice. So I do think as much as we're outraged around Flint, um, and we need to continue to put pressure so that um, the, the water supply uh, is safe uh, and that it is addressed in, a, in an expedited way, and to hold those uh, individuals accountable, 
but using this time to determine what do we need to then do, because Flint is just an example of what is happening across the country as it relates to environmental justice. And, and be clear that this is a, um, a case study of showing that this is clearly a discussion about contamination versus the notion of um, many of our urban communities have a very large um, population of um, children that are asthmatic. And, you know, the argument back and forth that asthma cannot be completely contributed to an environment, a man-made environmental um, um, issue. Flint, by all means, has no outside influence. Uh, it relates to the health of the young people and the people of, of Flint community. This was wholeheartedly a man-made um, issue. Um, it was a politically driven issue. Uh, it shows blatantly the notion of the have and have not, um, in that the loudest voice um, in the most politically influenced community can um, prevent detrimental things happening. But I also do believe the squeaky wheel gets the oil and it doesn't really matter how much that squeaky wheel earns, that we need to double down in our um, call to action to one, vote in this election cycle, but to understand the power of grassroots organizing and making sure our voices are heard in the political process. And more importantly, ensure that we are um, recruiting and um, supporting candidates from our communities uh, to run for office so that there is always someone sitting at decision-making tables to ensure something like this doesn't happen in the future. Environmental racism is um, a global beast. Um, I was struck when watching some parts of the congressional hearing um, by the pity party that Governor Rick Snyder was throwing for himself as he spoke about having to live with his absolute inaction and failure when it came to his responsibilities as governor for the people of Flint. And I was struck by the, um, the power of the disconnect that comes between white privilege and the kind of inaction that is um, excused as not being racist, but when it is so connected to both poverty and race, there is no other conclusion that it is environmental racism. I was struck by that. Um, I was struck by the idea of corporations becoming human. I remember the Citizens United um, ruling, the one that basically ruled that corporations could be treated as people when it came to campaign donations for um, um, political campaigns. And thinking about Flint, it's the same reality that the lives and the futures and the health of babies and grandmothers and women and children um, take are, are superseded by the buck that you can save. And the belief that this is not a community that will um, hold you accountable, hold you hostage to the inaction um, that you committed, uh, that this happened on your, on your watch. I was struck by Governor Snyder's refusal to resign and the idea that not just leadership in action, but criminal, criminally negligent health behavior that results in who knows what long-term health issues uh, that may arise as a result of the ongoing um, drinking that's been going on two years, two years, and still no real plan to properly fix this. Still no real plan, actually, at this point. And then 
I was struck by the importance of um, marrying the individual to the institutional. And I definitely take Glinda's point about this is about the politics of public policy. And for too many of us who think that politics comes down to primaries and the casting of votes for an individual, this is the moment when you have to connect the people to the policy, to the politicians, back to your health, your life, your future, what you want and how you get it. I always say that, yes, voting may be um, electoral politics is a limited power, but it is absolutely a power nonetheless. One of the um, speakers in this segment, um, Pastor Daniel Moore, said very simply in, in the white affluent Michigan suburbs, this simply would not have happened. There would not be the dumping of, um, of waste. The, the first time that water came through the tap and it was the color of mud, um, the first time that happened, there would have been the kind of outrage that would have led to either calls to the governor's office or meetings with him or the kind of uproar that may not have made the front pages but would have caused immediate change. Even more so, it is unlikely that it would have happened in the first place. That is the reality of how racism functions. Um, and then I think also about the emotionality of what water is, that water is a life giver. Without it, you literally um, die. And that on World Water Day, we talk about the idea of access to fresh water and the ways in which environment and uh, the, glo the globe, globality, denies those real things. So in a, on a day when we're thinking about the ways in which environmental um, issues lead to the kinds of crisis and the devastation that the lack of access to fresh water causes. What then do we say about a man-made crisis? Something that is totally avoidable, which is actually where I think it's different than Katrina because Katrina, the levees broke as a result of the hurricane. The hurricane was not a man-made issue. This, Flint, oh, totally avoidable, totally avoidable. So then let me just ask you both one um, question. When it comes to that connection between public policy, what happened to Flint and people on the ground, do we get it enough that um, we do the work to deal with a governor like Snyder? Or is there still more work to do to connect the activism to the public policy, the politics of that public policy? What do you think, Imani? I've been thinking about this, this term, you know, hip-hop term, stay woke. I meditate on that a lot because it doesn't say wake up. It doesn't say, you know, get awake. It says stay woke. And to me, it's this ongoing, we're, we're consistently assaulted by new information on how corrupt our world is, our government is, um, our politicians are. Um, and we have to consistently keep waking ourselves up, staying awake to this reality so we can keep doing the activism that is necessary and that is the hard work. Of, of bringing, keeping these issues in the light to ourselves and to our community. So I feel like it, the community, it's, that's our only hope in general. I feel like that's our only hope is us uniting um, to do the work to support each other, to take care of ourselves. And, and you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, I, I'm, I, I often think about this science fiction uh, movie, Soyan Green, um, is set in like 22, 2022, and it's about this um, dystopic time in a, a New York, a, a future New York City that's overcrowded, and they don't have enough food for people, and they literally start feeding people each other. And Sawyer Green is people, and I just feel like if we don't 
stay awake, if we don't stay woke, if we don't join with each other to fight against all of these injustices, if we don't organize as a community on small levels, the way people have been, you know, growing food themselves and trying to put pressure so that things can stay in the news, thank God for social media, then we'll, we really will be running around saying soy and green is people, that we'll be eating each other because this is unfortunately the history, the long history of, of how our government consistently treats people, how world governments treat their, their own. And so activism is, is one of the only ways, and community organizing is one of the only ways we're going to survive and thrive. And, um, I mean, it's all distressing and, like, we have to stay woke and keep doing this work. Glendica? Imani, it's interesting that um, you uh, started with the kind of stay woke piece, hashtag stay woke. I think we need to even push the envelope on stay woke with the notes that people are actually awake. Um, and that, again, in this moment, uh, we have an opportunity of the awakening of the 21st century, um, you know, civil rights movement, environmental rights movement, women's rights movement, and kind of what black um, African-Americans' role will, con- will evolve into. Um, again, there's been, you know, major organizing around uh, uh, some very strong issues over the last couple of years around voting rights, um, criminal justice. Um, around um, women's rights and, and, and now uh, 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 bringing to light a larger conversation around envi- environmental rights. Be clear, these, moments have, these movements um, have been active um, um, consistently, but with the use of social media and the 24-hour you know, cable news cycle has allowed these issues to reach a broader audience, which has created outrage. Um, and it's clear, like, how do we move from outrage to a broader organizing model. Democracy doesn't begin and end on election day. You know, I spent six years working for the New York State Legislature, um, and we need to be consistently in contact with our elected leaders, both on the local level and national level. Clearly, presidential elections are sexy and everybody is talking about it, but we need to be paying attention to our very local um, uh, local elected offices and a local legislative bodies and being engaged and in dialogue with those elected officials and do two things. Oftentimes we only um, contact our elected officials um, in times of crisis or in times of um, um, when we're not happy. The notion that we also have to be good partners for the elected leaders that are our champions and giving them the space um, to be better, even better on those issues and stronger on those issues. Um, so we need to, one, hold our elected officials accountable, but also um, support our champions uh, to be um, able to move forward um, better public policy, but also just being a stronger voice and providing a venue for that. So um, I'm excited about the awakening of um, African Americans across intergenerational um, intergenerationally, we're seeing younger people um, engage in, in creating, having understanding that they have a voice. Um, there is no difference between an affluent community and um, a low-income community as it relates to our political power. It's about how we assert that power um, and allowing people to understand that regardless of where you are in a social economic spectrum, um, regardless of your, your educational attainment, regardless of race, regardless of gender, that this country is built on one, you know, one vote, one man, um, and that we need to exercise that and understand how we can assert power. 
Well, except that it was the fundamentals of the way it was built was in inequity, and the writing that inequity has been the ongoing um, um, battle. So this World Water Day, March twenty second, um, water H two O, in the Volta region in Ghana, um, where they're facing their challenges. In India, where the rivers are drying up, and in Flint, Michigan. They want us to move out of state. No. They trying to poison our water with hate. Uh. Doing the best that we can to survive. They say they trying to help us, they lying. I am reporting a state of emergency. They got our water looking like dirty pee. They want to kill us, I know that they do. This was our politics, tell us the truth. Tell me why we don't have money in school. Taking our taxes, we paying our dues. Teachers are protesting, we want to change. Darnell early, you was too late. If it's not you, tell me who is to blame. Dragging our city in hall of a shame. Rick Snyder, please handle your biz. Do you know what this water would do to our kids? Learning disability and people being handicapped. People have to get us and you wonder why we care straps. Kids got to wear a coat to set up in the classroom can't learn water dripping through the roof we need help tell me what we gotta do rick snyder tell me what you're trying to prove they trying to kill off our children with water that's the one thing that we need and they know it they trying to kill off our water supply we only multiply we never die i get family drinking that water from rivers you say that we thugs but you white collar killers please don't tell me this was all about money you cut our supply just to budget some money you don't think none of our safety important you just been worried about they want us to get out the city. I know that they do. They want us to get out the city. Just tell us the truth. They want us to get out the city. I know that they do. They want us to get out the city. Just tell us the truth. Our teachers, they only want better. They cannot do this alone. We together. Rick Snyder never went up there to visit. Talk to us people when handle some business. You say it's none of your fault. Then who is it? I'm speaking for all of my brothers and sisters. I don't see how they can give you a raise. Truth come to light, it's a matter of days. We need to get a democracy back in Flint, Michigan, cause we are under attack. I'ma give Snyder a piece of my mind when I see him. Ain't nobody holding me back. He knew that that water was poison when they showed that was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Imani Azuri and Glinda Carr. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the U.S. in Arizona. Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Iowa, and South Carolina. We are on air in West Africa, on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7, Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. They want us to get out the city. Time for the first of our hot topics, felony disenfranchisement. The voting season is well and truly here. Primaries, primaries everywhere in Utah, Arizona, and Michigan, and primaries in the Sunshine State. Florida. Everyone in Florida cannot vote. One particular group who are not allowed to hit the ballot box are the formerly incarcerated from felony conviction. In the US, it's called felony disenfranchisement. Almost six million people across the United States are prohibited from voting as a result of these state laws. These laws forbid those with felony convictions to vote. So, 
even after you have served your time and are back in society. Living your life, working and making your daily bread, you still can't vote in states with felony disenfranchisement laws. Now, not all states have these laws. For example, in Vermont and Maine, you can actually vote from jail. Florida, though, has the highest number of disenfranchised voters. 1.54 million citizens cannot vote because of a previous felony conviction. Over 10% of adults in the state can't vote because of the same reason. Communities of color are disproportionately impacted. Nearly 25%, that's a quarter of the African-American voting age population, is disenfranchised. That's nearly one in four black adults. Here's Desmond Mead, chair of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. He was formerly incarcerated and currently can't vote. His wife is actually running for public office, and yet he can't support her with his vote. At the crux of the problem is that whenever you have politicians deciding which American citizen get the vote and which don't, you're always going to run into problems. And it's going to probably fall around along partisan lines. And so what we're trying to do here in Florida is that we want to take that power out of the hands of politicians and put it in the Constitution, which would allow an individual, once they've completed their sentence, to be able to vote. Right now in the state of Florida, an individual will have to wait either five or seven years before, after completing their sentence, before they're even allowed to just apply. And then once they apply, we're seeing application processing times of eight to ten years. And so you have an individual, an American citizen, waiting over 17 years after he have completed his sentence, after he has repaid his debt to society, but yet he still cannot achieve citizenship status. And that is a blow against democracy. Desmond Mead claims that in Florida, it's just far too easy to get a felony conviction for the most minor of infractions. In the state of Florida, you can get a, a, a felony conviction for disturbing turtle nesting eggs, driving with a suspended license, burning a tire in public, trespassing on a, a construction site. And my favorite was when a gentleman released helium-filled balloons in the air. He was a, immediately arrested and charged with a felony offense. And that is something that so many American citizens do without even thinking about the repercussions of that, uh, specifically in Florida. Desmond Mead had been homeless and dealt with a drug problem that had caused him to be in and out of jail. However, he'd gone on to turn his life around, go to college, go to law school, graduate, get married. But even now, he can't buy property he wants, can't vote, can't practice law. He says this reminds him of history and Jim Crow. In spite of all that I've been able to overcome, to include graduating from FIU College of Law with a JD degree, I still, not only can I not vote, I can't buy a home anywhere I want to, and I'm not even allowed to practice law because I cannot even apply to the Florida bar until my rights have been restored. Now, I could go to 40 other, 48 other states and, and, and apply to the bar and practice law, but that just reminds me of the days of slavery when the, all a slave had to do was cross a state line to get freedom. We're in 2016. It's time to get rid of these Jim Crow policies. An American citizen should not have to move to another state just to participate in the democratic process. Let's talk second chances. Let's talk the polls, the people, and the prisons. Glinda Carr, let me start with you. Are we really living in the 21st you know, century 
as relates to American democracy. The notion that our industrial prison system is a place where you serve your time, you've paid your debt, yet and still there's no real pathway. It's the notion like immigration pathway to citizenship that our brothers and sisters that have served their time and paid their debt in restitution to society still doesn't have a pathway to restore their full citizenship. And when you talk about using Florida as an example, 1.5, over 1.5 million citizens don't have the ability to, to restore their right to vote. That 1.5, by all means, can decide elections and that those 1.5 million individuals aren't able to exercise their, their right to vote and to use their voice as it relates to reshaping and shaping our democracy. But that's exactly what I love about um, the brother down in Florida organizing is the fact that his wife, Sheena Mead, is running for office. And I'm sure the work that they're doing around criminal justice and some of the work she's doing in the community around other issues had her step off the sidelines and run for office. Oftentimes, particularly, that's why women run for office. You know, they, an issue has, you know, enraged them or inspired them to step off the sidelines and decide to run for office so that they can be at a decision-making table to help shape public policy. I'm sure that the notion around restoring voting rights is going to be centered to her candidacy and her interest in serving in the state legislature. But at the same time, as we highlight Florida, we also have to look at the gains that we've made. In Maryland, you know, on March 10th, 40,000 Maryland citizens had their voting rights restored and will be voting in their presidential primary at the end of April and being able to affect many of the local races that are happening. There's a highly contested Baltimore race happening for mayor. So here's a legislature that over the last couple of years has fought a very hard fight in regards to developing and putting forth a a bill to restore over 40,000 citizens' voting rights in one swoop. Um, And then what does that compound? Literally, this law that was enacted on March 10th will allow as soon as you serve and, and leave the prison, your voting rights have been restored. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Florida is one of the state that clearly has one, one of the most regressive laws on the books as it relates to this. So this is a good election cycle to bring forward the, the discussion around does everybody have a right to vote in this election cycle and have their voice heard in this democracy. Imani Azuri? It's hopeful to hear about um, Maryland. That's, that's very, very hopeful because I, when I think of um, the disenfranchisement of, of people who've been convicted of felonies outside of the voting um, injustice around that, in my opinion. Also, like, the hardship of trying to find work, being able to get student loans, on and on and on. You know, I have family members who have, you know, are are trying to move themselves to a new place and are getting blocked by this this felony. Um, One of the things that, you know, some of the, you know, marijuana and things like that have been um, slowly becoming legal in this country. There's so many people who are uh, are felons because of the marijuana laws, you know, and um, once, you know, the laws change and it becomes legal, hope, hopefully that can change how people are able to move forward with their rights. But um, the thing is just so, I don't know, it's also interesting to me how fragile what we call our rights in this quote-unquote democracy, democracy, how fragile, how just, you know, little things can just chip away at what we actually have for our freedom. And, um, 
you know, we can't even take anything for granted because it seems like there's always some something going on that could at any any moment erode what we think we know as our freedom. Um, and so I'm very happy to, to hear um, Linda Carr talk about this Maryland thing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear about the organizing that's happening in Florida and um, the, the March 10th, everything that you talked about, I'm really happy to hear that because it, it's, it's very frustrating and it definitely just, it just is old school. The fact that it's, it's some laws back from Jim Crow, you know, that we're still dealing with. And we know that outside of what is happening legally, we know that there are other forces that are not even quote unquote legal. They're just a cultural, systemic, com- uh, communal, um, invisible quote unquote forces that keep people from feeling like disenfranchised or feeling like they can't vote. And so when so outside of what's happening legally that's stopping people from exercising their rights, there's all these other things that are happening economically, environmentally and so forth that help people feel uh, demoralized or disenfranchised or even hopeless about what does their vote mean. And um so outside of the vote, I, I definitely am a really big belief once again in the idea of community organizing because, you know, sometimes the vote, even if we get the right to vote, that may not sustain us to protect us. Um, and it's it's devastating when you see that, that systems are in place to take away what we supposedly have as our, our legal rights. And so it, we just have to keep, once again, keep organizing and keep um, keeping ourselves united as, a, as communi- various communities, across communities, because um, the legal system does not have our back. And um, we just have to fight to try to maintain um, whatever type of legal rights we have, and then we still have to work even doubly hard to to fight against what is not, what is even outside the legal system that's consistently trying to push us down or push us back. And it's all, you know, it's all a lot of psychological, as you talk about, Esther, your emotional justice. It's a lot of psychological stress and trauma and psychic pulling, you know, because we're just trying to live out here. <laughs> we can't even live. We got the law after us. We got so much going on. Desmond Mead, showing leadership by example, walking his walk to make change.
Watermouth, the Caesar, the monsters, the grandiose, the martyrs, the hell on earth pompers, Ellsworth, Bumpy Johnsons, the Harlemites, the Garveyites, black as the credit card we swipe, popping down the night for all of mine. I can see myself back at the Audubon, Malcolm on the podium, shells drop to linoleum, swipe those, place them on display at the Smithsonian, next to only gems that were left behind by holy men, infectious, charisma of those who gave us direction, the anti-sexes, resistance against oppression, progressive thinking, ghetto speakers, protesters against the colored only section to the genesis. Time for Hot Topic 2, from a Florida primary to ousting a Chicago prosecutor. In Chicago, Cook County State's prosecutor attorney Anita Alvarez was defeated in a blow-up local election. She was defeated two to one by her opponent. Chicago was the scene of ongoing protests after the shooting of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald came to light. He was shot 16 times by former police officer Jason Van Dyke in 2014. Now, in the original account, Laquan was accused of lunging at officers with a knife when he was shot. That was until dash camera footage obtained by local journalists showed he was actually moving away from police when Van Dyke opened fire. Dyke continued to shoot, standing over the teenager as Laquan lay helpless on the ground. It was described by some as an execution. Prosecutor Anita Alvarez waited 400 days, more than one year, before finally charging Van Dyke with first-degree murder. And even that charge came just before the camera footage was going to be made public by a judge's order. The timing gave the impression of a cover-up. Alvarez was accused of being more interested in protecting the jobs of police officers than she was in justice. Ousting the prosecutor from office was seen as a Black Lives Matter victory. The organization had been accused of being leaderless and lacking structure. But in this local election, the movement went from the streets to the polls, joining forces, making coalitions to kick Alvarez out. They did not endorse her opponent, showing a strategic decision-making process. The campaign across social media and traditional organizing had a hashtag. Bye, Anita. And what a goodbye it was. Let's talk. The politics of ousting prosecutors, incumbents, and the power of organizing and coalition building from protests to polls. Imani Zuri, let me start with you. That story in Chicago, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a wonderful example of, of what it means to um, just community organize and how we have, to, we have to do this work. We have to do this work. And I... Um, I love the hashtag because it was so <laughs> just by Anita, you know. <laughs> I just loved it. Um, but I, it is interesting that they didn't endorse the other candidate. I love that it wasn't about because even at the end of one of the articles that you sent us, one of the organizers was like, "And um, Kim Fox should know as well. We won't we won't stop until we're free." And this is um, one of the organizers of Asada's daughters. We won't stop until we're free, and Kim Fox should know that as well. And I feel like that speaks to um, communities, the Chicago com- community of organizers, and I think a lot of community organizers in general, understanding that it's a system that we are literally organizing against and that sometimes people with the best intentions become a part of the system and they uphold the system. So how do we as community organizers, how do we um, do the work to dismantle systems that are white supremacists, that are um, embedded in racism, uh, patriarchy, um, heteronormativity, on and on and on. How do we dismantle these systems in order to get to get free, you know, uh, free the land and all that stuff? And so I just feel like the Chicago scenario has, has been something that's been hopeful 
because it, it was such a community movement and it, and, and it was very effective as far as social media also just spreading the effect of social media let a lot of people who are not even around Chicago really pay attention and understand and see see how it can be done in a very powerful way. You know, but it doesn't bring back, you know, Laquan, it doesn't bring back anybody, you know, and that's the that's the devastation. It's like we're organizing to try to dismantle these systems that are that are out to not protect us, out to kill us literally. And um the devastation and the and the trauma of always knowing that we don't matter in the bigger system, that we have to acclaim that with, with Black Lives Matter, but that we don't matter to the systems, and we have to matter to ourselves and do that work. We have to do that work because the they is not, don't give a F about us. As Michael Jackson said, they don't really care about us, and that's true. And so I really do love that um, this, this group of organizers is an example of what it means to deal not not make it a code of personality not act like one person getting in the office is going to change everything that they that they are still going to have to keep doing the work and supporting the movement and and holding even the new uh, person accountable and that they're going to be paying attention and as we talked about early stay woke or the awakening as glinda said glinda Carr. so these two prosecutor elections one in cook county which is chicago and cleveland provides an example of being able to organize and defeat an incumbent. Oftentimes, it is very difficult to kind of like overcome the power of incumbency. So the notion that you have two cities that are cities that are predominantly communities of color that had two very prominent cases that outraged the community that we were able to organize by building coalitions of community organizers across different institutions and different organizations to defeat um, an incumbent on the street, right? So, you know, you'll hear, I've talked to a couple of folks, particularly in Cleveland, you know, obviously these weren't overly sexy races where millions of dollars were being raised for this community organizing piece, that the good old-fashioned hit the ground, knock on the door. If you remember seeing some of the photos from Chicago where there were, you know, the old-fashioned sheet banners, right, not even your fancy glossy billboards, that they were hanging literally homemade street banners around by Anita, allowed us to go back to the grassroots, you know, 60s organizing model of door-to-door wins the war. But there is a conservative effort nationally with several national organizations like Color of Change around paying attention and organizing in, around prosecutors' race. So the Women's Donor Network last year released a study that said 95% of our prosecutors are white, and over 75% of them are white males. So the the notion of taking this epidemic around police brutality and creating a very conservative strategy around one, taking out prosecutors um, that have a record of not being good for our communities, but also recruiting, training, and supporting long-term prosecutors that look like us. Um, And if they don't look like us, that they are, you know, are holding policies and an approach around how they're going to deal and work with our communities uh, is something that we're going to see that these aren't going to be the only two races that uh, have different outcomes in, in, in the years to come. So I'm excited about the energy and excitement about hitting the streets and knocking on the doors. We need to move forward on that uh, in this election cycle and ensure that we are using that same zealousness to ensure that we are coming out and, and voting our interests 
in the presidential election cycle. Uh, and I just want to do a shout out also is many of these organizers, particularly in Chicago, were young African-American women. And, you know, Esther, I always say when I'm, uh, I'm on with you is that when you fire up a black woman, she doesn't go to the polls alone. And these two examples, these two city elections absolutely shows that, that when, when we are fired up, we pulled everybody out. We pulled our house, our church, our sorority, our water cooler out. And probably, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but I'm sure the, you know, the turnout were, was, you know, historically high for the election. It is never magic and it's always work. But my Lord, hashtag Bayanita. <laughs> <laughs> That's your hour. Thank you to Glinda Carr and Imani Zuri. And we celebrate Imani Zuri, who is making her debut at the Lincoln Center American Songbook on March 31st. Thanks, ladies. Thank you, Esther Amar. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at 
Esther Armour. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.